it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 17 of Bustin' Loose Baseball with Danny Ruye, Grant Paulson, Darius Dameron making us sound good. Coming up this episode, injuries to Jackson Tetra, the asking price for Josh Bell, potential injury to Juan Soto, and why this team cannot beat the Marlins. All coming up on this episode. Keep it locked right here. It all starts right now. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Hello and welcome into this episode of Bustin' Loose Baseball. It is episode 17. Grant Paulson will be along in a minute. I'm Danny Ruye. Darius Stammert is hanging out here as well. Thanks to all you guys for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this little teeny tiny podcast. 17 episodes in the books, and we hope to continue to do this throughout the season, have off-season episodes, and just try to do things that we think you guys think are interesting. That was a weird phrase, weird sentence structure, but whatever. The point is we want you guys to dig it. Keep tweeting us at Funny Danny, at Grand H. Paulson, the different things that you guys would like to hear, players profiled, minor leaguers, things at the major league level, big burning questions, just things that you want answered. We'd love to hear from you guys. Always appreciate the feedback, the rates, the reviews, the subscriptions, all of that good stuff. This is actually kind of a big episode for a team that lost four straight to the Marlins. By the way, oh my God, this thing with the Marlins. Thank goodness they don't play for a little while. That's number one. Number two, some positives here. A, a couple big moments that have happened in July. Barry Sverluga wrote a column about this in the Washington Post. Basically, this July, for a team that's you know got one of the worst records in baseball at this point, again, just lost four straight to the Marlins, it's not about wins and losses on the field. If you guys are listening to this podcast, you know that Grant and I are not going to sit there and lament and break down uh, a loss like that happened uh, as we record this here on Tuesday that happened on July 4th. Like this is a first division club that's fighting with the Mets and the Braves for a division championship. This is about process. And recently the process has had Patrick Corbin throw the hell out of the ball. Two straight starts, he's been really, really good. Not good for this new Patrick Corbin, but like legitimately really, really good. That's exciting thing. That's you know, that's something that's really, really positive, obviously, for a guy that's going to be here and is locked in at a pretty big contract figure for the next few seasons. But a major set of developments off the field for the Nationals here this month. And Barry was talking about this in his column. Number one, extensions, one-year options picked up for Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo, just solidifying things, right? So whomever, whatever the ownership group that's probably going to come in and buy this club, I think they want this all done. Maybe, you know, you've already seen a few, uh, again, according to Barry, a few different ownership groups have toured the stadium, have kind of gotten some behind-the-scenes stuff. We're looking at the books. This is not exploratory. This is a sale is going to happen. I think that's kind of what we all uh, agree is going down. There's more to come here. But you have some stability for whoever the new ownership group is. Then you offer the fact that I think they want this process to start moving in earnest. You get whoever that is approved in November once it's owner's meeting time. 
That's the timetable. So then the group is going to take over next year. So you've got some stability in terms of Davey Martinez is going to be back for his fifth year and Mike Rizzo, the best executive uh, this organization has ever had, certainly. You know, it's not a huge honor. There's been two. Um, but the success under Mike Rizzo, the architect of, of all the great teams that we have seen, including that World Series team, and one of the best executives in the sport, quite frankly. He's got a really, really good track record. We're now going to see Again, some ability to kind of keep continuity even as changes are happening at the very highest level. I think that's a critical, critical thing for everybody. It's not just for you know for Rizzo and Davey Martinez. Those guys will be fine. They'll be snatched up the instant their free agents are, are available, especially Rizzo with his track record. He's got enough connections in baseball where he could you know write his own ticket. But it's more scouts. It's the you know the, the the lieutenants, the top guys under Rizzo. They can go out and do their work knowing that they've got some security. And in professional sports, that's pretty rare, to be honest with you. So you know you've got some organizational continuity. Regardless of who the new ownership team is, you've still got some time to get your ducks in a row. To, you know what the, uh, the big boss is looking for. You know what Rizzo wants to see. You know the way the reports get turned in. You know the way that you, know, the, you want the letterhead. You want the stationery. You want the index cards. All those different things that matter the way certain teams do it. All of these guys and gals know exactly what they're supposed to be doing on a daily basis. That little stuff like that matters, especially when you're beating the bushes, trying to find the next solution long-term uh, for a team that's that's in, in an earnest rebuild. It's not just scouting major leaguers, which is what you do when you're winning 90-plus games. You, you're scouting 16-year-old kids. You're scouting you know children all over the world trying to figure out who could be here in short order to really help this club. So that's a major development, a good thing for the Nationals, I think, uh, and, and this organization in general. So I'd also offer... The, the, the next biggest thing that's happened here, speaking of guys that are going to be here, is Patrick Corbin throwing very well. And two straight games, Patrick Corbin has been outstanding. Yesterday, scatters eight hits, goes seven innings, allows one earned run, and struck out four. His month of July, he's been really good. His last two starts, he's pitched to a 2-3-7 ERA. I think he's been fantastic. Now, I'm not ready to start a parade yet. Overall, the numbers are, are what they are. I, I'm sort of figuring out on the fly is this guy now, I don't want to say mastering, but is this guy kind of coming into his own in this sort of second stage of his career? Someone that was going to be close to a double-digit punch-out per, uh, per nine innings guy when everything was right, that put-away slider. Fish haven't been biting over the last few seasons on that, so can you figure out a way to get outs without necessarily striking out a ton of batters? So this Patrick Corbin, these last two outings, have been really, really encouraging. And as Corbin has thrown really well, again, gone deep into two ball games uh, over his last two outings here against Pittsburgh, granted an offensive team that's that, or a team that's pretty challenged offensively, and a Miami Marlins team that doesn't hit the cover off the ball, still major league lineups, he's thrown really, really well. GP, I'll bring you in here at this point. What have you seen from Corbin? Why has he had good results here over his last couple starts? Well, a couple of things. I think in two of his more dominant starts, or at least more successful, efficient starts deep into games. He has benefited from teams jumping on him on the first pitch and not having a lot of success. So if you do that and you barrel him on one of those very hittable get-me-over fastballs, you know you might lace balls into the gap, hit balls over the fence. You might slug high and have a, high, you know, a lot of extra base hits. But the flip side of that is that's not always going to be the case, and you'll run into outs right quickly. So contact right at people, Adam Balls and infielders, outfielders, and then all of a sudden he gets real deep into those starts. It goes back to, remember the outing he had, I think it was at Colorado earlier this year, where they were just ambushing him on the first pitch, basically. And I don't know exactly when it changed, but it's pretty clear that I think the idea is swing early in the count so that you can get a fastball because you're not trying to hit the slider with two strikes 
which is going to be below the strike zone, and it's tough because he tunnels it well with his fastball to pick up out of the hand. So I think philosophically, hitters are just jumping on him, and if he's able to locate that fastball and either miss the big part of the strike zone or get them to hit it at someone, I actually think that's where the success came from. The problem is just because the stuff's not great, there's going to be plenty of games where you know they ambush him and, and it's five hits you know, through six batters, right? And they've scored three runs in the first inning. You see that too. But I think we're in a trend here more often than not where they've been hitting it at guys is, is kind of how I view it. I actually think that's pretty salient. So when you start to look at some of these, you know, ancillary numbers uh, that, you know, kind of have you count up over the course of the season, his soft hit percentage is less than it's been in, during his dominant seasons. His hard hit percentage is right there over what it's been over the last couple of seasons. In fact, it's bigger than it was last year when he was hit around an awful lot. Guys are squaring him up, and that's, again, over the course of a season, not necessarily reflecting the most recent numbers, but I think big picture, the ball's still getting hit hard off of him. The, the level of deception hasn't necessarily been there, so he's run into some good fortune of late, and that's going to happen at times, right? You, you put the ball in play and let your defense do the work, and that, of course, let him down many times uh, during the first half of the season as the Nationals defensively were just punting it around, and you've got a, a guy playing shortstop at the Major Leagues who's probably not a Major League shortstop just yet who's going to make some errors. You, you were you know, not getting great results in that regard. And some of those things are kind of equalizing uh, in terms of line drive percentage. Uh, he, you know, he's getting a lot of line drives and fly balls. It's basically around 50% of his contact that's going out into the field are line drives and fly balls. That's a dangerous thing uh, for a pitcher uh, that's not Garrett Cole, right? Garrett Cole would love for fly balls to happen because he throws 100 miles an hour at the top of the zone and he welcomes it. Patrick Corbett isn't doing that. Um, but just in terms of that good fortune. We talked about this earlier. Remember, we had a good stretch. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, GP. I want to say it was in the spring. Maybe maybe, maybe in May at one point we had a couple good starts in a row. And we were going, yeah, that's nice. We're happy about that. But look at this. You know, the, the percentage of fly balls that he was giving up that weren't going over the fence right then when it was cold. Or, you know, when the, when the ball wasn't traveling in the same way. Some of those things, as the weather you know, kind of changes, it gets more humid. Uh, maybe they switch out the balls at the All-Star break. Who knows what Major League Baseball's plans are with, with baseballs, et cetera. But some of those things can come back to bite him, and they certainly did for a little while. But again, these last couple of starts have been really encouraging. And you just kind of wonder, is there something to build on here, right? Is there, is there some way? Because that's all we're doing. We're desperately searching for a way to get some value out of Patrick Corbin over the next couple of seasons because he's under contract and not going anywhere. Yeah, so I, I think what we see is what we get, and I don't think it's changing or getting better, right? I do think that largely you're seeing an improvement because he's getting deeper into starts and eating innings. His value to this team right now and to this organization is really based solely on his durability and his consistency to be in the rotation. What I mean by that is it's not worth $140 million. I'm not going to tell you that it is. But the fact that he posts every fifth day, that's what he's bringing to the team at this juncture. The fact that when he posts every fifth day, he can actually eat innings. Even if he's getting knocked around, he can go five and give up seven earnings. He can go six if it's going okay, give up five runs. It, you know, you've seen him. Davey will trot him out there for 110 pitches and eight innings occasionally if he's throwing the ball well. That's where his value comes from. It's not that he's going to be particularly good consistently. Uh, if you look at some of the projections right now or, or peripheral numbers on him, his expecting batting average is 308 this year. That's bottom four percent of the league. His expected slug is 546. That's bottom six percent of the league. 
is expected on base or weighted on base. Uh, Wober right now, bottom 7% of the league. His hard hit percentage, you know, which is not in the bottom 5 or 10%, uh, luckily right now, still, as you said, harder than it's been any of the last two years, you know, worst in his career. So I, I just kind of think we are where we are with him. Uh, I remember early in the season talking to a Nats front office person, and they said he's been a lot better than his numbers. And I actually do- dove into it, and they were 100% right. And their point was, like, look at expected ERA. Look at some of these things they are going to change. Well, the problem is they've changed for the worse. Like, his ex-ERA right now is 5.85, bottom six in the league. So, bottom 6%. So, I, I say all that to say anyone who thinks that, like, 2019 Corbin's walking through the door, I think they've given up. But even this idea of he could be a number four starter, he could really help them, I don't buy that. The hope is just he posts every five days, and when he does, he eats innings. That's kind of what you're going for at this point with Patrick Corbin. So the the big key for him was getting guys to swing at pitches outside the strike zone. Right, So things have to look like strikes for a really long time before they break out of the zone. And then when you see that enough times, thinking about that back foot slider to righties, you paint inside corner with that fastball that can hump up 93-94. He was doing that a couple times yesterday, by the way. His his fastball is a bit firmer than we've seen it. He's, his average velo has been just under 92 miles an hour on the four-seam, according to fan graphs. He was 94-95, a, a, a decent amount, I would say. Yesterday, recording this here on Tuesday, talking about the July 4th start. But that percentage of getting guys to swing outside the strike zone has crept down. It's not a number that 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 looks like it's transformative, right? It's been in the low 30s uh, percentage. And when he was really, really good, it's in the high 30s, close to 40%. Now, it only seems like a small drop-off. But I'm telling you, those things add up. And it, and it kind of coincides with his strikeout totals really going down. And he's throwing a sinker maybe a little bit more, looking for some ground ball contact, uh, hoping to kind of have a contract with batters where, hey, you want to get a good pitch to hit? I want to get this at bat over early because if it goes deep, it's probably not great for me. And I think it's kind of worked out here to his benefit over these last couple of starts. But getting guys to swing out of the zone, it was what Randy Johnson, who you know had a, had a similar repertoire, obviously Johnson, Hall of Famer, and, and, and his stuff was way different than, than Patrick Corbin's, but that same combo, right, of that fastball slider and you not being able to tell. You got to cheat to get to the fastball, and when you do, you're swinging over that slider. You swing over that slider enough times, then the fastball's by you. Just at Turned out Randy Johnson at 6'10 was basically handing the ball to the catcher while throwing close to 100 miles an hour. You know, similar philosophies on, on ways to pitch. But guys are not swinging as often on that stuff out of the zone for Patrick Corbin. I, I think that's a huge key for him just to be able to get some of those things. That's where his punch outs are coming from. It's not coming from blowing guys away in the zone. It's not coming from called strike threes all that often. It's burying that slider but having it look like a strike for for as long as possible. And I feel like that's what's been missing for him, GP. And I'm with you. I don't know that that 2019 version is coming back. Definitely a big part of it. I want to talk Jackson Tatro with you because he's been one of the bright spots. We had him on the pod very recently. He had thrown really good starts consecutively back-to-back, and now he is on the shelf. So he goes the way of Evan Lee. Remember, the double-A lefty got called up, pitched. We're like, oh, this is exciting. We get to watch him now the rest of the season. He went to the injured list, hasn't been available. Jackson Tatro, back-to-back good starts, something for Nationals fans to monitor here the rest of the season. He actually seems to have what could be a pretty serious injury. I went and saw him pitch on July 2nd on Saturday afternoon at Nats Park. He did not have a particularly good outing. Maybe part of the reason why. 15-day injured list retroactive to July 3rd. Stress fracture of the right scapula before the start of play on Monday morning on the 4th of July. He was placed on the shelf. 
dagger, man. Because I got to tell you, I mean, he he did. He scuffled 84 pitches, 44 strikes. Davey Martinez brought up some questions about you know what he'd seen from Tatro, who's 26 years old, in that outing. And next thing you know, he's headed to the shelf after they look into it, and he's got a stress fracture. You hate to see that for a young arm, especially one who just got to the big leagues. But they feel snake-bitten right now, man. I mean, between he and Lee, those are the two guys that they felt are minor, you know, major league ready from the minors to call up, and they're both on the shelf now. Yeah, it it, it is a bummer, especially for the you know for for Tatro, right? Because you know this is someone that's been knocking on the door and grinding and really really trying. He's not a twenty year old that's that's up here doing this. He's you know uh, the window for him is a little bit shorter than some of these other guys. So you, you just feel for him. I mean, you feel for anybody certainly that goes on the shelf in that way, shortly after tasting the sweet fruit of of being in the show and having some success. And you know now, of course, it looks like a, a sort of a long path here uh, to recovery. But it, it, th- what I was thinking about when he went down, obviously, besides my initial sort of you know queasy feeling in the stomach and just how I feel for the guy and how bummed I am, the thing that we always talk about when it comes to you know one side would say babying the arms, one side would say trying to protect the arms. I don't know where the solution lies. I don't think anybody does. But it, it reminds me of. Of that discussion, GP, and again, I don't have the right answer. There's no magic formula. There's no one way to to do it organizationally. It seems like they're trying to, you know, maybe have some kid gloves on some of these guys because they're worried about this. But here it comes, right? It's almost like if the if you're going to break, you're going to break, and there's almost no amount of pitch counts or you know limited throwing or too much throwing or in between side session throwing or touch and feel sessions, whatever it is. It just seems like it, it's going to happen if it's going to happen. And I don't know what, what what my solution is from that. I don't know what my, okay, because it's just going to happen, we should have this protocol for, for young arms. It just made me think of that discussion is all and how we don't really seem to know what the answer is until it breaks. Yeah, some quotes from Tatro postgame from Masson's Mark Zuckerman. When I constantly see a pattern of something that doesn't usually happen, he was talking about the movement of his pitches, uh, you know that something's wrong. He went on to say, you've got to do your best – to try to figure it out, and I wasn't able to today. This was right after his start. To say that I'm disappointed in myself would be an extreme understatement. He also went on to say that uh, he thinks it's probably something that has lingered for a little while. Apparently he felt some issue in the back of his shoulder during his warm-up pitches, and he just decided to pitch through it and, and see what happened during the outing. And then after he threw, he basically couldn't lift his arm up over his shoulder. And at that point, they knew something was very wrong. Reminds me, though, a little bit of how many times we've seen Max Scherzer. Yes. Something is just a hair off. Basically call the trainer out, Paul Lassard or whoever else, and just say, hey, I'm good. I'm not doing this. You know, even in a World Series game, like he woke up. I think in that case, it was severe back pain that I think his wife was like helping him put his clothes on or whatever. He had His whole body had kind of shut down on him. But he knows his body better than anyone, and you saw that with the Mets in a start this year where he was mowing along, like no-hit type stuff. And he basically called the training staff out and was like, yeah, I'm not throwing another pitch. Whereas you got this guy who's 26 and trying to prove himself and just got to the big leagues uh, who is feeling something severe at the back of his shoulder blade. And he's like, yeah, I'll go out here and see what happens. And then he can't lift his arm up over his head uh, after the outing, and, and who knows how long he'll be out. Hopefully it's shorter than it sounds, but when you start hearing stress fracture, that's tough. It certainly is. And it's one of those things that doesn't get better with hard work. It gets better with rest. It gets better with not doing anything, which is, you know, so so contrary. And you touched on something, too. The guy trying to make his mark, right, trying to stick in the big leagues. I remember actually having a conversation you and I did 
with, uh, I think it was with Drew Storen, years and years and years and years and years ago, um, as he's you know still trying to get himself established in in, in the major leagues. I mean, I know it, it seems funny to think about because his. You know, he's had his whole arc of a career, but back then he was still trying to stick and figure out if he's going to be the closer or if someone else is going to do it or or kind of whatever. And we were talking about that balance, right, between getting yourself ready for a season, getting yourself ready for 162, and also trying to win a job and impressing all the right people there in spring training. You're still trying to work on stuff. You're still trying to make sure that you're ready to, to be extended and go through the grind and pitch back-to-back days and get warm and then not throw and, and still be ready to rock and roll when, when the time comes. And that balance is really hard. It's really hard for for guys that have done it for a long time, let alone dudes that are trying to make their mark in the big leagues. So yeah, again, you just you feel for Tetro as he's trying to win a job. I mean, I understand that mentality, right? He's he wants to stick in the major leagues. Being the guy that's not available doesn't help that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Zoom. I want to shift gears here, GP. We can tackle two birds with one stone. That's not the expression. You're not tackling the birds. That would be a really difficult thing to Why do. Why would you tackle birds? You what would. have they done to you? They have well, I mean, they're just they're they're so arrogant with their tweeting and just sort of flapping their wings. Like, oh, you can fly and I can't. But we're gonna to try to hit a couple birds here with a stone. Juan Soto leaves the game with a bit of an ankle uh injury. Looks like day to day, nothing too serious, you hope. And it happened in the game against the Marlins, and the Nationals, quite simply, cannot beat the Marlins. I think it's like a third of the Marlins' is his wins this year, numbers approximate, are against the Nationals. It's unbelievable how the tables have turned. Yeah, it really is incredible. Let's go Soto first because he felt something in the calf. So I thought he was going to have to sit the entire following day at least with it being an 11 a.m. start. Everyone gets to the ballpark and they find out Soto's not in the lineup and, you know, they're bumming. I actually thought one of the best scenes so far this season – of Nats baseball was when Soto pinch hit late in that ball game with a couple runners on. He ends up drawing a, a walk, and there was nothing thrown really anywhere near the plate that he could have hit. But Soto takes the walk, and then he's immediately pinch run for. So it was a anticlimactic performance because he essentially just stood in, didn't have to lift the bat, and then he, he walked to first base, and, and Escobar came out to run for him. But the reaction, I'm sure you saw it in the eighth inning. It was cool. It was World Series-like. I think Soto even said it. It was like a playoff atmosphere when he came up, and he was shuffling like he was in the NLCS against St. Louis. You know, front of the batter's box, back of the batter's box. He was locked in. That was as engaged and as much fun as I've had him, uh, seen him have in a while. And I I think it honestly goes back to it's like a chicken or the egg thing, the reaction in the crowd and, and the fact that everyone was giddy to see him, and he fed off that energy. It was really, really cool. It's also a good sign, though. Yeah, yes. they don't want him in the outfield maybe or don't want him running the bases right now because of the calf. But the MRI showed everything was fine. And to play the morning after 
you know, you're leaving with an injury really, really uh, made me feel a lot better about the injury itself. Same here. I, I, I felt like that was – given that he pinch hit – I feel like him leaving the game was more pre- – at the time, I'm going, well, this is probably a calf strain, which is an exasperating injury, kind of we're, as we're piggybacking here off Tetro, talking about things that are really frustrating. But you can't do anything. You just have to sit there. You have to not exert yourself. You've got to let it heal. It takes time. You don't even realize how often you're using uh, you know, that calf, and kind of every, mo- every motion, every action can kind of make it grab and, and sort of set you back a little bit. So initially I'm going, okay, this is probably something he'll go in the 10-day and injured list with. He'll have to rest. It now seems like it was more precautionary. Like, hey, let's, let's nip this in the bud here. Let's you know, get you off your feet before whatever this little strain is actually ends up getting worse. So that was an encouraging sign. I, I'd imagine he would be entitled to some rest here o- over the next couple of days, but maybe avoiding an injured list trip uh, seems to be in the cards. Quietly, and everything's going to be quiet unless he's just homering in every at-bat because of the expectations for him. Uh, he has really gotten going a little bit here. If you look at the last week, he's 6-for-17 at the plate, which is a three fifty three average. He obviously had the opposite field home run, loud home run. It was vintage Nats Park, a left-handed batter, homering almost in the pool side down the left field line on Saturday is 15th of the season. So in this quote-unquote disappointing year, I mean, he's on pace for basically 30 home runs and an OPS around 850 or so. But over the last 15 games, his average is up close to 270, slugging 500. He's got an OPS close to 1,000 in that time. A lot of walks drawn for Juan Soto. In fact, he has twice as many walks as strikeouts over his last 15 games, seven more walks than strikeouts over his last 30. So he's putting the ball in play. He's making contact. You obviously want to see the ball in the air. Still a lot of ground ball outs for Juan Soto. But the trends are all pretty positive here before that injury. And the power that he showed on Saturday, following up on some doubles and extra base hits here recently, good to see. Yeah, Barry Lugo pointed this out. Um, his his OPS at the All-Star break last year was around 831. Right now, I think as of this recording, it's like 833. Last year, he finished right around 1. And this year, it's a question mark, but it looks like he's doing some of those same things uh, again. It, we talked about this. He's going to go on a hot streak. Those opposite field home runs, I think, are just great signs that he's in it. I think when he gets into problems, it's when he's trying to pull everything. He doesn't have to. He can naturally do that. He can react and and sort of live into left center and even you know go over the fence straight away left field or even down the left field line, which is just incredible uh, as far as you know those kinds of bits of hitting marvel uh, that he can do. Just just truly truly amazing. He will get locked in, and, and Josh Bell being scalding hot behind him certainly helps. Uh, as well. So I, I do think that's coming uh, as we kind of get into the second half of the season. It's just, you know, he's too good to be a 226 or whatever it is hitter here. And, and over his last, I think, 20, over the last 28 days, batting average of around 290, OPS over one, it's all starting to come together for him. And, and that sharp contact and all those good things are going to change that batting average on balls and play, et cetera. I just want to, you know, stick answers, wrong answers only, right answers, whatever you want to do here, GP. It really is. It's 12 of 13 this team has lost to the, to the Miami Marlins. Why? Why can't they beat the Marlins? Why isn't it like, you know, seven and six, or why isn't it like eight and five that they've that they've lost to, to the Marlins? It's, they've been they found new and galling ways to lose to this club, and literally thirty eight wins on the season. Twelve of those thirty eight are against the Washington Nationals. Why can't they beat them? It's a great question. I mean, they they haven't really played clean baseball a lot of the time, so we could start there. Also, the Marlins have terrific pitching. 
They don't beat really good pitching very often. I don't feel like anecdotally. So when you're talking about Sandy Alcantara right now, might be the best pitcher in, in baseball he's this incredible. season. I mean, he's, he's right there at the top of the board. They've had to face him, and Lopez is really good. I mean, even the guys who are struggling have shoved on them, frankly, so maybe that punches a hole in my theory because Trevor Rogers just completely shut them down the other day. But I think part of it is that the Marlins are as decent and deep a pitching staff as they have to face. And lineup-wise, I mean, we, we've talked about Soto's issues. Like, other than Josh Bell – they don't have consistent hitters this season, really. I mean, they've, they've got some guys that get hot here or there. So it's not a particularly good lineup, and they face good pitching. You're going to lose most of the time. That doesn't explain why you're 1-12. You're like, even the Mets have great pitching. You, you beat the Mets some. You know, so I, I don't know. I mean, the Marlins have their number. There's no doubt about it, and sometimes that's the way it goes. But look at the last couple of uh, days of that series. Sunday and Monday, where they go to extra innings twice, including on the 4th of July, and they lose both of those games where Tanner Rainey gives up crooked numbers in extras who's had a pretty good season, including a two-run homer that hit the foul pole. You know, if they're playing another team in the division, maybe that drifts a few feet left, and that that's a foul ball. <laughs> that's Instead, right. it squares up the foul pole, and you lose the game despite scoring a run in the bottom half of that inning. So I don't have a good answer for you. I wish I did, but it is stunning that they can't beat this Miami team because it's not like the Marlins are that good. I know. Just aggressively okay. It really is amazing. So I get, and we always talk about this on on our regular show, Grant and Danny, but I I, I don't have a problem when Jacob deGrom, when healthy, when he shoves on you. That's what he does. He does that to everybody. Sandy Alcantara is awesome. He's got a great chance to win the Cy Young Award with over 115 innings, a a buck 95 ERA. Pablo Lopez is having an unbelievable season. That guy's great. Trevor Rogers is four and six with a five, five, six. 3-0 3-0 and against the Nationals. Everybody else, he's a touchdown and, and probably going for two, right, in terms of his ERA, in terms of all the peripherals. But against Washington, oh, my goodness, is that SOB nasty. They're, they're throwing in extra guys in the rotation, and, and some of their regular dudes haven't even been available uh, when it comes to pitching against the Nationals. It's just they, it's uncanny sometimes how you find a way to do that, right, just the utter dominance uh, that Miami has this year. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's a role reversal from the way that it's been in this division for the, you know, for the previous 10 seasons, give or take, where, you know, where Washington was getting fat on, on the bottom parts of, of this division and then, you know, maybe just breaking even when it came to interleague play or, or, or things like that. But it's, uh, it's certainly a role reversal because you're right. Miami's fine. Their young pitching is awesome. It's, I'm, I'm jealous of it. But it's not as if this is the 27 Yankees here beating down your door. And it's, you know, I think it was Dela, Brian Dela Cruz who's got four homers on the season. None more titanic than taking a Tanner Rainey 98-mile-an-hour fastball up in the zone straight away to left field hitting the foul pole. Like, you, you give him 198-mile-an-hour fastballs in that exact same spot, he would do that one time. And that's the time he did it, of course, off Tanner Rainey to send that game at extras. But it really is kind of comical that just uh, can't seem to beat the Marlins. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. See you later. The one guy that that has been, you mentioned him earlier, that's been just scalding, has been awesome, continues to rake a protecting Juan Soto, B making his all-star bid at a crowded first base position, albeit. But you, you floated something a little while ago uh, on a previous episode about Josh Bell and maybe something the Nationals could do and be open to. But his asking price, I feel like, on both fronts, both in terms of trade and maybe in terms of of a contract for somebody here after the season, might be going up the way he's kind of continued. A home run right-handed the other day. Josh Bell is having an unbelievable offensive season, and it's really since he had that terrible start when he got COVID, I believe, at the start of last year, if memory serves, if I've got the timing right, where he got off to this terrible start. Since then, he's been really, really good, but he's taken it to another level through the first half of the season. Yeah, so as of middle of this week, 162 games back, which is the one full major league season he was hitting over 300 with big-time power. 162 games, I mean, pretty incredible mm-hmm. for Josh Bell. And, and that really was bridging the start of his turnaround because you had it right. He got COVID out of spring training. Remember, last year was his first year in Washington, and in spring training he was on a tear. He was killing the ball. Oh, everything was a bomb, and I, I was thinking he was going to have this huge season. Then he got COVID, and I remember being told that he was, you know, his temperature was like 104. I mean, he, he had real symptoms, and I think he was chasing his tail for a few weeks at the start of the season where he had bad at-bats, really, really bad. Like, And he's got a complicated swing. I remember talking to somebody with the team about trying to get him going, and it was right at the start of May that he turned it around. I think he had a three-hit game against the Marlins on May 1st, a couple doubles, game that I was able to call for Masson, and, and it was the beginning of the rest of his season after what was just a horrific April. But I remember that day talking to someone with the club, and they said, yeah, it's a, it's a really complicated swing. There's a lot of moving parts. It's like Bryce Harper. When he gets out of whack, he's really out of whack. But when he locks it in, he will go on a tear. And sure enough, he did. But for the most part, he's really you know been on that tear ever since. I mean, there's been a week here or there where you know he had to make adjustments but uh, that's from May of last year on for the most part but he's hitting 320 I mean he's getting on base 40 percent of the time his OPS is 915 he's got 12 homers and he's doing it as you said from both sides of the plate with the power and he's driven in 47 runs and there was a graphic on the uh, TV broadcast on the 4th of July uh, it was showing like four guys in the big leagues who have 20 plus runs batted in against righties and 20 plus runs batted in against lefties or something like that. And he's one of a couple of guys on that list. So he's been very, very consistent, uh, and he's done it in a bad lineup, or, or at least in a lineup that isn't performing, right? He's getting a lot to hit, I think, because of Juan Soto's presence. But otherwise, he doesn't get a whole lot of help. So immensely impressive season for him. He's 29 years old. You would have to imagine uh, he's going to look for some type of contract that's going to get him to the end of his career. I'm sure he'll be asking for something close to five years. I'm sure teams will probably want to give him something closer to three seasons, and and they'll have to maybe meet in the middle, I suppose. But my plan is this. I think this is what you were referencing. Mm -hmm. I'm trading him for the best package I can get because their system isn't good enough. Still, it's, it's frankly, it's it's not good. And they need to add minor league pieces. And there's no one else that they can trade that will get them a whole lot back. So you have to trade Josh Bell. It's, it's not a want to, it's a need to. 
And, and frankly, I don't think they have a choice. I mean, let, let's say for whatever reason they wanted to keep him and keep negotiating ahead of the market. It doesn't make sense, right? He's represented by Boris. He's going to hit the market. So they have to trade him. And then what I think they got to try to do is get back in line to try to bring him back, which is something that you see done in Major League Baseball. Do I think it's likely? I don't. But not because you traded them, just because I, I don't think they're going to, in the middle of a sale, spend what it's going to take. Because to your point, Danny, I think the asking price for JB is going up. How could it not? I mean, he's having a bangerang season. He had the one big all-star year before, the 37 homer, 115 RBI year. Mm-hmm. But that season, he hit 270. You know, that year, he was about a 930 OPS guy. He's pretty much doing some of those same things with a little bit less power right now. So... I totally think he's in line for a pretty big payday here. Since June of last year, okay, so we now just passed a, a year and change of this behavior. We talk about this all, all the time, again, both both on this show and on Grant and Danny. The longer you do something, the more that's just what you do and not some sort of weird anomaly. We're talking, again, about uh, something in the positive direction here for Bell. He He's only had one month where he hit under 280. That was in August of last year. He's only had one month where his OPS has been less than 835. It's a lot of 884, 885, 909, OPS over 1,000. He had one month of May this year where he slumped down a little bit uh, down below that. But he has been a consistent offensive performer. The way guys, and I used to think about this, uh, I'm trying to remember who this was, GP. I had a, a, a hitting coach at one point who, who talked about Tony Gwynn, uh, you know, one, obviously one of the consummate professionals, one of the greatest hitters ever to walk on this earth. And he's like, the way you hit 300 isn't just you're always on fire, right? It's you're always wrapping out base hits and, and you go, you know, one for three every day or two for four every day, whatever it is. He said, you, you're going to have ups and downs. It's going to happen. Sometimes the ball falls in, sometimes it doesn't. You limit the bad. You, that's how you get to be a 300 hitter at the major league level or, or at the highest levels, you know, of amateur baseball, college baseball, you know, semi-pro, minor leagues, whatever. You're always going to have bad times. The pitcher, it's the only game where the defense controls the ball, right? Pitching happens to you. You can react to it as, as good as possible, give yourself the best opportunity as often as you can. You try to square up the baseball, and then whatever happens, happens, right? Defensive shifts, great plays against you, you know, good fortune, bad fortune, et cetera. If you limit your bad streaks, you minimize those, right? You get out of them. You don't get too complicated. You don't try to do too much. If you stay within yourself, that one for 10 couple of games or that two for 25, you know, week plus that everybody's going to get doesn't kill you because you're kind of back doing the thing that you do, right? And Josh Bell has been doing that for more than a year at this point. He He's had barely a couple of weeks over the course of a year plus where he's really scuffled, really slumped, and has come out of it. Hasn't been one of those prolonged things where, you know, where it sort of kind of defines your you know half of a season or otherwise. He's had a, a bit of a scuffle this May. That's it over the course of a year plus. He's been excellent. So in terms of, of what you could get back, that's kind of the, the immediate problem. Not the problem, but kind of the immediate frontier for the Nationals and Mike Rizzo and company. When it comes to the uh, the trade market, you're going, they might be able to get something decent back. And there's an article here on Fangraphs, by the way, just apropos of what you just said, Washington National System is still not very good. I mean, that's right here. That's the headline <laughs> on the uh, that we're going to talk about, I think, later on this week. But the asking price may be going up. You could be talking about a guy that could be knocking on the door of the major leagues here within the next season or two that could really help a contender, talking about Josh Bell. Then in the offseason, whatever happens, happens, and, and that ownership transition is probably going to be a challenge in terms of re-signing him. But the next thing that's going to happen immediately, as Josh Bell is playing really well, there's got to be dollar signs in the eyes of Mike Rizzo and company when it comes to you know maybe moving him at the deadline. This is how big and how productive a season Josh Bell's having. He's ninth in baseball in OPS right now. 
And of the eight guys in front of him, only two of them have more home runs. Or, excuse me, have, have a higher batting average, uh-huh. I should say. So think about this. So he, he is ninth in OPS, and only Rafael Devers, who's hitting three twenty seven, and Paul Goldschmidt, who's hitting three forty, have a higher batting average. Jordan Alvarez, three ten, Harper, three eighteen, now hurt, same as Bell. Uh, Judge, two eighty two, Jose Ramirez, two eighty nine, Machado, three eighteen, same as Bell. You're talking about two guys who have a better OPS and a better batting average in all of baseball than Josh Bell. So when that player is available, that's an impact stick, right? And you're talking about it'd be ideal for the Nats if if he was, you know, a plus defensive player at a premium position or even a plus defensive player at first, which is not the case. But he can play first. He has shown that this season, some acrobatic plays, including on this homestand here against the Marlins. He can DH now in either league. That's a big deal. Used to be if you were a Josh Bell type, pretty much an American League team was going to add you. Because unless an NL team needed a first baseman, you can't play that guy as a designated hitter. But now every single team in baseball who's a contender is in play. Because if you have a first baseman, no problem. You can just plug Josh Bell in as your DH, and almost certainly he's an upgrade. And if you've got a DH, you can move that guy into the outfield or wherever it is that they might play and really improve your offense. So I think they'll do okay. I mean, I, I don't. we don't live in a time, Danny, where you know, <laughs> elite-level prospects are getting traded. They're not getting – you know, a, a future all-star, unless you package a Trey Turner with controllability and a Max Scherzer. It's why that move by Rizzo, and I know it's frustrating for Nats fans to hear, was actually so brilliant last year because you got your catcher of the future in the middle of the rotation or better starter. But I think they'll get multiple players back, and ideally one of them's going to end up being a starter at the major league level, hopefully, if they can hit a home run on the Josh Bell trade. That's my goal. Strange week coming up here after you had that wraparound series against the Marlins. Uh, you've got three against Philadelphia, who all of a sudden, it's, it's so weird, GP. They fired their manager as they were entering into an easy part of their schedule, and lo and behold, it turned everything around. They just finished a 19-8 and eight month of June, and then three games against the Braves. But, uh, you know, getting into division play, and then next week, they I think they play Seattle for a little two-piece, but uh, some divisional work here. Final thoughts about this episode, or or what's coming up here? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Number one, I would say that uh, for Nats fans, we're getting into a time of the year that I think is going to be a little bit of a grind. But my hope is that you start to see some of these players graduate. You know, there is an opening in the rotation now. Maybe it's Cade Cavalli time. You know, and if it's not, it's going to be soon enough in these next couple of weeks, right? Um, When he's back healthy, throwing every five days, he's not far from being at the major league. So, I think that what I would say is you're looking for reasons to keep watching. You're looking for reasons to stay engaged among them when Josiah Gray is throwing. That's fun. That's important. Uh, I definitely uh, still want to see the development of Kbert Ruiz. A lot of the other stuff is kind of salt and pepper on the table. You know, it's it's window dressing at this point. Mm-hmm. But we're not far off from starting to see a couple of these prospects get the bump. And, uh, and and it's okay to start digging into the minor league box scores as well. I mean, that's where we are as Nats fans. 
That's a good point. And that will do it for this episode here of Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 17 of the books. Thanks to Darius for GP. I'm Danny Ruye. Remember to keep on subscribing, rate, review, spread the word. Tweet us at Funny Danny, at Grand H Pulse, and everything you want to hear, see, smell, taste, whatever. We'll try to do it on the next episode of Bustin' Loose Baseball. Always want to hear from you guys. And I'll get it wherever you get your podcast Odyssey app, Spotify, Apple Pods, et cetera, et cetera. Until later on this week, probably Thursday evening, enjoy Nationals baseball.